Let's pray before we start. Father, we realize the things we're going to talk about tonight may make some of us feel awkward. We know uh, this topic, maybe more than anything else, has the capacity to get under our skin because these things are so uh, close to our heart. And so I pray that you will help us. We realize, too, that the perspective uh, we get from your word on this topic is very, very different from the perspective we are fed outside the church every day. So I pray that you will help us. I pray that each of us will be open to what your Holy Spirit might say to us and what your word uh, says. I pray that your spirit will take the passages of the Bible that we look at and the things we think about and apply them to each of us. Let me ask this for your glory. Amen. Today we're continuing this series called Habits of Discipleship, doing one a month. This is the fourth installment after a break in the summer. So far we've looked at Bible reading and prayer and stewardship of time. And if we ask what is it that ties these topics together, it's that they're all things we have to be intentional about. We have to make them a regular part of our lives, and that involves training. And so here are the theme verses for this series from Paul's letter to Timothy. Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. All the habits we're looking at in this series are part of training ourselves for godliness. And this evening we come to a second aspect of stewardship. We've looked at stewardship of time. Today we're going to think about stewardship of our money and possessions. And we will have opportunity for questions and comments at the end. Last time we saw that a steward manages someone else's property. In our case, we are stewards of God's property. He has entrusted it to us. In the Bible, God says to Job, everything under heaven belongs to me. It belongs to God, and he has never surrendered his claim to any of it. One writer says, he didn't die and leave the world to me or to anyone else. And what that means is, for you and for me, your paycheck, the interest on any investments you might have, your house, your kitchen, the food in your kitchen, your dining table, your car, your spare bedroom, the clothes in your wardrobe, the phone in your pocket. They are all God's, everything under heaven. And he has entrusted those things to you to manage for him. But maybe, of course, we're tempted to argue with that. How can it be his? I earn the money by my own sweat. I pay for the things I have. 
Well, if you feel like that, listen to these words from Deuteronomy. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God gave you the health, the strength, and the brains to earn your money. He gave you the initiative, the drive, and the perseverance to have whatever success you might have had. And if you have invested it successfully, God gave you the wisdom to achieve that successful investment. No doubt you have sweated for what you've earned, but it's God's sweat. So here's the foundational point for this topic. It's all God's. And if you and I grasp that reality, then we will be ready to see ourselves not as owners, but as stewards. That's the biblical view. And however much of a struggle it is, it has to become our view. Once we begin to see ourselves as stewards, we can go on then to think about giving. It should be much easier to think about once we've realized it's all God's stuff anyway. I'm going to highlight four truths about giving, first of all, and then we'll think about the details of giving. First of all, giving is worship. According to the Bible, giving is not first and foremost about obligation. It's worship. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul mentions some gifts the Philippian believers had sent to him. And this is how he describes those gifts. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. I would encourage you to think of your own giving in that way. I know it's hard to do. It's easy to do it without really thinking. We just write a check or maybe we set up a direct debit And our giving can be just like another one of our bills. It can be just another item in the monthly outgoing column. But we will find more joy in our giving if we see it as part of our worship. And that's the main reason we still take up a collection during our Sunday morning service. Now I know we could debate that and I know there are some strong reasons for not taking up a collection in a worship service. There's always the chance visitors will take it the wrong way. And we certainly don't want to come across as being money-grabbing as a church. But I think the danger of being misunderstood is far outweighed by the symbolism of the giving. It's a reminder that we worship with our wallets as well as with our voices. So if you normally give once a month, that's fine. But I would encourage you to find some way of reminding yourself that giving is worship. Maybe take time to pray while the offering is being collected each week, even if you don't have anything to put in. Use that opportunity to tell God you're glad to have given what you gave this month. Tell him you believe he's worthy of what you've given. Ask him to make you an even better steward of what he's entrusted to you. Don Whitney says, give like you mean it. 
Hopefully we mean what we pray and what we sing. So let's mean what we give as well. And that will probably mean we find ourselves reconsidering what we give. One preacher says, your use of money shows what you think of God. So what does my giving show about what I think of God? Am I giving begrudgingly? Or am I eager to give because God is so worthy? And of course, giving isn't restricted to just money. When we open our home for hospitality, for example, that's giving and that's also worship. But whatever I'm doing, if I'm a reluctant giver, it's probably because I'm not totally convinced God is worthy. Giving is worship. It's also investment. Every single one of us is investing all the time. We invest in experiences like holidays and nights out. We invest in stuff like houses and cars and clothes and gadgets. We invest in savings and stocks and pensions. And none of that is wrong, not at all. But the Bible says Jesus has given us a much more significant investment opportunity. Much more significant than any of the things I just mentioned. This is what he says in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice, Jesus does not say investment is a bad thing. He doesn't tell us not to think about investing. He says, make sure you invest in the right place. Invest in the one place your investment is going to be eternally secure. It is not wrong to invest on this earth. We all do it every day. But it is foolish in the light of Jesus' words to make our major investments on this earth. Because ultimately we lose those investments. You've all heard about the man who died. And one of his friends said, how much did he leave? The answer was, everything. The only investments we won't leave are the investments we've made in heaven. Someone has said, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. A man called Randy Alcorn has written a great little book on this topic. It's called The Treasure Principle. And if you're interested, you can have a look. I'd be happy to order a copy for you if you'd like it. This is what he says. Each day brings us closer to death. If your treasures are on earth, that means each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. So again, it is not wrong to invest in your house or your pension. But in a sense, those should be the investments we do reluctantly 
because we know we're ultimately going to lose them. But when you and I invest our money in God's kingdom, those investments are still going to be paying out 30 million years from now. So as they would say in America, it's a no-brainer. But it's only a no-brainer if we have our heart set on heaven. And that's where we all struggle. Our hearts get so tangled up with things here and now. So how do we get our hearts set on heaven? Randy Alcorn has a helpful insight here, picking up on the verses in Matthew we read a minute ago. He says, My heart always goes where I put God's money. As surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. Money leads, hearts follow. I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money into missions and your church and the poor and your heart will follow. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some of your money, maybe most of your money, from temporal things to eternal things. Watch what happens. In other words, don't wait until you feel like investing in eternal things. Start making those investments and your heart will follow. It has to. You will care about eternal things because you've invested in them. We always care about the things we've invested in. If I sink my money into shares in Apple, I can't help being very, very interested in Apple. It works the same way when you and I invest in God's kingdom. Giving is worship, it's investment, and it is obedience. I didn't mention this first, Because the Bible puts the emphasis on the privilege of giving rather than on the duty. But it is still true, giving is not optional for God's people. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the offering, an offering that he's taking up to give to the church in Jerusalem. And he says to the Corinthians, they're one of the churches contributing, because of the service, that's their contribution to the offering, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Paul says their giving was generosity and it was also obedience. God's people are commanded to give. Like I said, that's not where the Bible puts the emphasis when it talks about giving. But it is there. Giving is worship, it's investment, it's obedience, and it's liberating. Money and possessions can enslave us. When we don't have them, the desire for them can consume us. And when we do have them, the burden of maintaining and increasing them, that can make us miserable. 
Randy Alcorn talks about the tyranny of things. Maybe you felt that. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to give you an illustration of the way things can become a heavy burden to us. Material things. Some of you may have heard of the preacher John Ortberg. This story is from him. He says, many years ago, early on in our marriage, my wife and I sold our Volkswagen Beetle to buy our first really nice piece of furniture. It was a sofa. It was a pink sofa. But for that kind of money, it was called a mauve sofa. The man at the sofa store told us all about how to take care of it, and we took it home. We had very small children in those days. And does anybody want to guess what the number one rule in our house was from that day on? Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve sofa. Don't think about the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But on this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereon, you will surely die. And then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. My wife called the man at the sofa factory and he told her how bad that was. So she assembled our three children to look at the stain on the sofa. Laura, who was then about four, and Mallory, who was about two and a half, and Johnny, who was maybe six months. She said, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says it's not coming out. Not for all eternity. Do you know how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're all going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. For a long time, they all just sat there until finally Mallory cracked and knew she would. She said, Laura did it. Laura said, no, it didn't. Then it was dead silence for the longest time. And I knew that none of them would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because they had never seen their mom that mad in their lives. I knew none of them was going to confess to putting the stain on the sofa because they knew if they did, they would spend all of eternity in the timeout chair. I knew that none of them would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because in fact, I was the one who put the stain on the sofa. And I wasn't saying nothing. Not a word. I appreciate that story because it connects with me in a special way. About a year and a half ago, we bought a new sofa. And our cat, some of you have met our cat, our cat very quickly realized just how precious that sofa was to me. And so every day he looks me in the eye and then he sharpens his claws on the sofa. 
Probably most of us have had similar experiences. We buy something expansive, something we've longed to have for a long, long time, and we find it becomes like a ball and chain. I genuinely never thought twice about our old sofa. And probably because of that, the cat never touched it. Maybe you've had the experience of getting a new car. And suddenly you are stressed about scratches. Or about somebody eating ice cream in the back seat. Obviously it is not wrong to buy a couch or a new car. But the more you and I invest in those things, the more we care about them. And the more we care about them, the more of a hold they have over us. The more we fret about them and stress over them. A neighbor of ours, or at least he owns a house next to us, also has a villa in Spain. But that villa has become just one more responsibility for him to worry about. He goes out there a few times a year, but instead of relaxing, he says, he spends all the time working on the place. He's just like a caretaker, except that he pays the bills as well. The more we accumulate and the more we own, the more worries and responsibilities we have. And that is why giving is liberating for us. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. He's explaining what Timothy is to teach the rich. And by world standards, that certainly includes all of us here today. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. A life that's weighed down by possessions is a second-class life. Paul says that as we give, as we prize our hands off our stuff, we're able to take hold of the life that is truly life. So by all means, buy the sofa if you need one. Just don't have a cat at the same time. Buy the car if you need one. But alongside that, let's develop the habit of giving. That will loosen the hold our possessions have on us. I'm going to move on now to what I'll call management issues. Because if I am a steward, if I am a manager of God's money and possessions, there are some management issues I need to think about. And we look at them in the form of three questions. How much should I give? What's my plan? And then, why not break a few rules? First of all, how much should I give? That's the most obvious question. And that's the most obvious way to ask the question. But there's a better way to ask it. Not how much should I give, but how much should I keep? Randy Alcorn says, as 
his money managers, God trusts us to set our own salaries. We draw needed funds from his wealth to pay our living expenses. One of our central spiritual decisions is determining what is a reasonable amount to live on. You and I get to decide how much of our income we invest in eternal things and how much we keep for living expenses. And I realize some of us will hear that and say, well, that's fine for other people. But my income doesn't cover even my basic living expenses. That may be true. And yet, we still get to choose. Here's the proof from Luke chapter 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. That lady could not afford to give. But she did give. She chose to set her own salary at zero. And she trusted God to give her a raise. No matter how little you or I have, we all have the opportunity to invest in eternal things. We may not all have the same faith as that widow, but we all have the same opportunity. We are free to give, if we choose, up to 100% of what we have. Or listen to what Paul says about the Christians in Macedonia. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. That's still referring to this collection Paul was taking up for the churches in Jerusalem. Those Macedonian Christians could not afford to give. And Paul certainly didn't make them give. Apparently he told them they weren't expected to give. But they did give. They pleaded for the privilege of giving, he says. They had to talk him into it. Talk him into receiving their gift. So the first management issue is to recognize the opportunity we have. God has not said to us, here's what percentage I allow you to invest in treasure in heaven. And you have to invest the rest in this world. We don't have to keep any of it. We are free to send it all on ahead if we want. 
So with that understanding, we can ask our second question. What's my plan? Giving is like all the other habits of discipleship we've looked at. It has to be planned or it won't happen. It's great to get fired up and say, yeah, investing in God's kingdom, definitely. But then we have to get out our calculator and we have to make a plan. And I realize that will be easier for some of us than for others. Depending on your line of work, maybe you have a very unpredictable income. But if you find that you can manage monthly bills, then use the same system for monthly giving. And some people are under the impression Christians are supposed to give 10%, called a tithe. And the requirement of a tithe does appear in the Old Testament law. But what we often don't realize is that the tithe was a baseline. It was a starting point. Because Israelites also brought free will offerings on top of the tithe. So we should think of the tithe the same way, as a starting point for our giving. Someone has said, giving 10% sets us on the path. It's not the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's like a toddler's first steps. So if you've not been in the habit of giving, take a step of faith and start giving 10% of your income. On the other hand, if you are in the habit of giving and you've always stopped at a tithe, take a new step of faith. Push on to a higher percentage. If you're already giving a higher percentage, see how much higher you can go. And I should make it clear, I am saying all this with absolutely no idea what any of you are giving. I genuinely don't know any of your details. I'm saying this because the New Testament describes giving as a skill we can all get better at. It's a privilege we can all enjoy more of. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul says you and I can go beyond just ticking the box when we give. We can learn to excel at giving. One writer says you've heard of prayer warriors. What about giving warriors? Why not? No one learns to excel at anything just by doing it when they feel like it. We learn to excel by practicing consistently. That's how it works with giving too. We give when we just don't think it's possible. And then we find out we didn't die. And we have the confidence to give a little more. That's why if you are Christian parents... It's good to teach your kids about giving. Help them to learn the habit early on. Maybe you feel uncomfortable getting your kids to do that. 
But I assume you make them brush their teeth. You make them go to bed. So if you teach them that hygiene and sleep are important, why should they miss out on learning the privilege of giving? One more thing about planning. Coming up with a plan means we have to decide what we're going to give to. And I would propose to you that as Christians, we should be giving to Christian work. Yes, God cares about a lot of different things. He cares about the whales. He cares about the stray cats and dogs and the lifeboats and many, many other worthy causes. I'm not saying that flippantly. God cares about all those things. But here's the thing. Non-Christians will support those causes. They do support them. Non-Christians are not going to support gospel causes. They will not give their money to gospel ministry. So let's divide the responsibility. Let non-Christians support those other worthy causes. And let's make it our responsibility to support gospel causes. And I'm not suggesting we throw money at every Christian cause or every Christian appeal. That's unwise. When you give to things that claim to be gospel causes, it's wise to do some research. Look into what they are actually doing with the money. Find out what they stand for. Take an interest in the things that you give to. As a church, hopefully you realize we support quite a few different ministries around the world. And by doing that, we're saying we are confident these ministries are all doing good work. And we try to have people from those ministries come and speak every couple of years. And we as church leaders want to be accountable in the way we use the money you give here to this church. We want to be open about the finances. We want you to feel confident we are using the money well. Church meetings give you a chance to ask questions. So this Thursday you can ask Dave anything you want. Finally, as you think about how much you give and as you make your plan, here's one last question to think about. Why not break a few rules? And here's what I mean by this. In the society we live in, there are lots of unwritten rules about how we should use our money. There are lots and lots of expectations. We grow up surrounded by them. And some of us never stop to realize we don't have to go along with those expectations. We can break those rules about how we use our money. We can stop and recognize that this world wants God's money. And we can refuse to give it what it wants. I'll just throw out a few of the rules we run into. One unwritten rule says, if you can't afford something, go into debt to get it. Now, it's virtually impossible to avoid all debt. 
If you want to go to university or own a house, you will end up with debt. But we should be very wary of taking on debt. If we do, it should be a major decision. Taking on more debt should never seem like a no-brainer to us. The vast majority of people do think it's a no-brainer. But as Christians, we have to realize the more debt we take on, the more of God's money we are tying up. And the more stress we're taking on. Here's another rule, often connected to the first one. The rule is, if you're getting married, you need to spend thousands on the wedding. Some of you here might be thinking about getting married. Or you may hope to be married one day. Why not consider breaking that rule? Marriage is definitely something that deserves a big, memorable celebration. But let's ask ourselves, might it be possible to have a great day and a memorable celebration without spending thousands? With the help of some creative friends, might it be possible to have an even better day and avoid half the stress and half the bills? Here's another one. This seems to be quite a new rule. If you don't want something or if you don't use it, don't just give it away. Get some money for it on eBay. Why not break that rule and just give it away? Or sell it on eBay and give the money away. It was dead money anyway when you were leaving it in your attic. How about this one? You need to spend hundreds on Christmas presents. If you're not still paying it off by the summer, you didn't do it right. Can't we break that rule? Do we have to be bullied into breaking the bank just like everyone else? I am not suggesting you just stop buying presents for people. But why not reset your idea of what's reasonable? Talk about it with your kids if you think it's going to be a stress. And when it comes to thinking about presents for people who already have everything, and we all buy for people like that every year, if you know they already have everything, and if you think they'd be open-minded enough, why not agree that instead of buying each other a present, you'll each pick a ministry for the other person to give to. And if they're not a Christian, let them pick a charity for you to give to. I know that's breaking my earlier rule, but it's Christmas. Better to give your money to a charity than spend it on something you know your friend is never going to use. Here's a final rule to consider breaking. And after this, I'm going to be leaving through the fire escape. I think I can get to my car in about six seconds. So don't try to outrun me, please. Here's the rule. You better not give too much away. You need to save it so your kids can inherit it.
That's a touchy one. But by the time you're gone, are your kids really going to need it? If they are capable of supporting themselves, do they really need a big injection of your money? They'd like it, of course, but would it do them any good? Do large windfalls often do people good? How many families have been torn apart over arguments about inheritance? Who gets what and who wanted what and who should have got what? Alcorn puts it like this. The money you've generated under God's provision doesn't belong to your children. It belongs to him. After all, if your money manager died, what would you think if he left all your money to his children? Everything that I'm saying is as much of a challenge to me as it is to any of you. I'm saying it to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. I hope some of what I've said has been helpful. And even if you disagree with something I've said, I hope it'll help you think about why you disagree. In a moment, I'm going to ask for questions and uh, comments. But let me just put up one final quote. When you leave this world, will you be known as one who accumulated treasures on earth that you couldn't keep? Or will you be recognized as one who invested treasures in heaven that you couldn't lose? So any questions, comments, arguments are fine as well. I think we do have a mic, yeah, thank you. I know money is supposed to be one of the three things you never talk about, isn't that right? But we could, we're all friends, we could talk about it. Just one little uh, comment, Tim, about um, giving to charities. Um, Do you think it's an absolute no-no? I mean... Personally, I would have difficulty giving to a dog's home. Uh, I hope I haven't offended anybody by saying that. But I wouldn't have difficulty giving to you know, a good charity that's going to help people in the future. So yeah. could you just you know, explain It's obviously a not a hard and fast rule. The Bible clearly doesn't address it. But what I would say, for almost anything where there's a secular charity doing work, in almost each case there is a Christian ministry doing the same or very, very similar work. So, for example, uh, clean water in Africa, there are lots of people doing that. We are supporting Taste, who also have a gospel side to their ministry. So if you want to support clean water in Africa, why not do it 
through a Christian ministry. That's what I would say to that. And of course it's not a hard and fast rule. I think it's just, if you think about an economic decision, the the fact is non-Christian charities are well supported in most cases by non-Christians. How many non-Christians give a penny to gospel work? So purely by dividing up the labor, it seems to make sense that if we don't support those gospel ministries, who will? So it's definitely not hard and fast. I hope you're not offended, but it's worth thinking about. And if there's a a particular enthusiasm you have for something, social care or whatever, there's probably a gospel-centered group who are doing that particular kind of work. Did you want to add any? Maybe come back on that? Thank you. I think um, one of the charities that's sort of particularly close to my heart is Cancer Research. And obviously I think it's um, um, probably close to a lot of people's heart. So yeah. it was sort of things like that where, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't see a Christian organization yeah, yeah. supporting that work. So it's that type of thing uh, I was thinking of. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, how could I possibly pronounce on that? I can't. Uh, it's just, as you think about it, factor in what I said and... How could I ever think less of anyone for giving to, to cancer charities? I, I wouldn't ever want to say anything like that. But um, anyone else want to speak about that? Yeah. Yeah, well, all of these things, there are things for us to go home and think about and ask God to give us some insight and to tinker with what we do in our own lives. That's That's what this is for. It's not for me to give you an extra set of rules for how you do things. It's maybe just to spark off our own thinking and our own prayers about it. We got one up here? Up at the front. Just so everyone else can hear you, Margaret. Okay. You can have that back then. Um, Although I'd got loving parents, I was brought up in real hard poverty and hardship. We lived in service tenancy homes and we moved about from place to place. Um, If I wanted a new pair of shoes, my family couldn't afford it. They used to cut the toes out in my shoes so they'd last me a lot longer. And in same applied to my sister. We never had blankets on the bed. They were always all coats. And, and now I feel I need to invest money into not my, into my children so they don't see poverty like that. And it can be poverty, it can be seen again because everything goes around in circles. So my investment is most important for my children. Am I doing wrong? Oh, are you doing wrong? This is something all of us, it's not for me, because as I said, the, the Bible says we're to give. But then it it spends its time talking about the joy of giving and those kind of things. And there's absolutely no doubt, I think I quoted from 1 Timothy, Paul says there that we do have a responsibility to provide for people who are dependent on us. So if our family doesn't get fed because we've uh, given to another family, well, we've kind of missed our first priority there. So it's, it's for each one of us to decide 
how much we keep, what we use it on. It's not a thing that I can give pronouncements about at all. It's for each one of us to to think about and consider. And that's, that's half of it. The worst thing to do is never to think about any of it at all. But to think about our priorities and make sure we're happy with them, well, that's, that's progress if we all do that. And ask, well, why am I doing this? Have I ever really thought about why I'm doing it? That's... Yeah. We knew an old lady who had a son who um, wasn't a Christian. The lady was a Christian. The son used to take care of her money when she wasn't able to. And this lady used to put quite a bit of money to the church, being uh, very conscientious in doing so. But the son used to get quite sore about it because he thought that church was was uh, were not stealing of her, but influencing her wrong to put her money into the church. That's a, that's a one way that which, which does happen. I suppose I don't know how many uh, situations you could come across that that does happen. But I was very much aware of that happening with that lady. She's passed on now, but her son was very sore about giving so much money to the church. Thank you. Up at the front here as well, Tom. Thanks. I think, Tom, I've mentioned this to you before. Um, you said something, I can't remember, it might have been two years ago, uh, which was just because you can afford it doesn't mean you have to have it. And I know that's something that stuck with me as being a bit of a person who likes to buy gadgets and stuff. And I think just listening to some of the comments um, about, I suppose, you know, investing in our children or, or whatever, there comes a point where we're influenced as to what we need and what we would like to have. And I don't think I've probably got that balance right ever. Um, but I think that is something that comes in because, you know, you talk about where your heart follows. We, we, we are heavily influenced by those around us and what people think, right? You know, wrongly in a lot of ways but you know that question of contentment with what we have because we need it and what we have because we we like it and again like you said it's not that nice things are wrong like move cities um, not that I'd have, oh, we have got one in our house haven't we yeah, um, <laughs> but we are allowed to sit on it um, but I've it, never got to sit on it <laughs> You move it out of the room it, when I come uh, out? It's it actually, it was badged up called a cuddle chair because it's not quite a three-seater. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So It's that one. Um, so it's, you know, there's a, there's a whole question, isn't there, like you say, where we examine ourselves as to do we really need it or is it, you know, something that we don't really need um, or any of us and how, how we use, you know, the money that we have in, in, that, in that side of things. We would all love, I'm sure, a page in the Bible that said, if you earn this much, give this much. If you have this, do this. That would be so much easier. But God wants us to grow and develop and depend on him. And so he has left it very much for us to work out between ourselves and him. And I think in the long run, that's better for us than a page of sums that we just stuck to and felt contented with. 
just to mention the throwaway culture today. I mean, particularly as older people, myself, I'm getting a lot of hand-me-ups these days from my kids, so I've got an iPhone, which was free for me. But I do think, in a way, we ought to measure how much we're throwing away, not just food or everything else, but all of our gadgets that uh, we are upgrading stuff at a regular basis when we probably don't need to. Yeah, Yeah, that's helpful. And just another comment, something that I was brought home to me over the summer. Very often, if we're interested in something, we can spend a lifetime collecting it and obsessing over our collections. But the fact is, when we go, it's unlikely whoever inherits our precious collections is really going to be as interested as we were. And a lot of it is going to end up in the tip. We were in a second-hand bookshop over the summer, and this guy came in with six black bin bags jammed full of books. And this particular bookshop didn't pay for books. They give you store credit. And he came in, and he explained that he had been, I guess his, his parents had died. He had inherited the house, and this was really their lifetime library that they'd collected over a lifetime. He bagged it up and threw it away uh, in the shop, When he left, the guy behind the counter said, well, I don't want this, I can't use it. He took it to the charity shop across the road. They were closed. It probably ended up in the skip. So that's something to think about as well. The stuff that consumes us, it's probably going to end up in the skip. So I think about that with with my books. Who's going to want my books when I'm gone? They probably won't have books anymore. You know, in, in Paul's writings, he says that God is not unjust to forget your labor of love in that you have done and do minister to the saints. And in the case of Cornelius, <clears throat> he was a man who prayed often and gave much alms to the poor, and his, those things came up for a remembrance before God. And also, when Paul went up with the question about circumcision to Jerusalem, one of the things that the, the apostle said to him was that he shouldn't forget the poor. And Paul says that he was forward to do that. So just an encouragement from the scriptures, forgiving. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Just on what you were saying about investing in the kingdom, um, maybe I'm wrong in thinking this way, but I think there is a place, isn't there, for investing in assets which can be used for the kingdom. We don't just have to give money away. I mean, there's Christ's kingdom here, and there are things we can do. For the car being a great example, if you have a car and you're using that to the glory of God in the church, that's another way of giving, isn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very helpful way to think about it. Because if you if you um, I heard a, a preacher give an illustration once, if I can just get it right. He spoke about a, a very um, luxurious home. He described all the various things in that home. And he said, is that a good thing? Is that person being faithful to God? Can you, what would you say when you look at their house? 
and we probably all drew certain conclusions about the way that person was using their money. But then he went on to explain that every week that family had many different people using their home and so they had a very nice place with very nice things, but it was constantly being used for ministry. They were having people around for meals. They were letting groups use it for weekends. And so, yeah, it's about the way we use the things we have, too. I mean, this building is a good example. It costs a lot to build. It's not ornate. And that's an investment in the kingdom, it could have been given to something else, but this is used for God's glory every week. So, yeah, I didn't mean to imply that it should always be, be given away. It can be invested in things that are used for the kingdom. It's helpful, yeah. Any final thoughts, comments? Well, like I said, if, if you are at all interested, you may, of course, not want to touch it after I've, what I've said, but if you are interested, I love this book. It's very easy to read, very short, and it, it definitely made me stop in my tracks quite a few times as I read it, but it's, it's not done in, a, in an aggressive way. It's easy to read, so you could uh, ask me if you want me to get you one of those, but let me pray before we eat our food. Father, we began by saying that these things were difficult for us. Uh, We feel awkward about them sometimes. We feel challenged, and maybe because we feel challenged, uh, we want to either not think about them or uh, push it away. But we pray that you'll help each one of us. All of us have different circumstances, and we don't want to be thinking about each other and what other people around us should do. We want to be before you. You know our hearts. You know what we have. And we want to use it for your glory and for your kingdom. And we also want to be faithful to the family responsibilities you've given us. So help us. We need your wisdom. And we want to have open hearts to obey what you might show us as we pray about this. So help us to to keep thinking about this, keep praying about it. And we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us. We know that even when we Uh, think that we're poor, we look around the world and we realize that you have blessed us greatly. We thank you for the food that's stacked up next door. That in itself is a sign of our wealth. And so we're thankful and we want to be faithful to you. So we ask you to help us. Amen. Thank you.